Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, and first and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Le Prevot. Catherine is the Director of Be Living Student and Professional Homes. Catherine, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's program. Good morning and my pleasure. Thank you. Good morning, Catherine. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Um, The purpose of this discussion, of course, is to establish initially your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside and just considering that in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. I think a leader is a very leading word. I mean, um, a leader is an important person who obviously has control over anything in some respects. I mean, in, in the business sense, a leader is somebody who is forefrontal in the particular business that they're enrolled in. And a good leader will be one who can lead her team of staff or his team of staff um, through difficult times and through easy times, uh, be professional and also Uh, be approachable. And I think an approachable professional leader who is calm, kind and caring Mm. is something that everybody would like to see and have in place. Mm. So you'd say that your own sort of personal leadership model would very much line up with those ideals, Catherine? I do try to. I mean, I've worked Mm. in other industries and other sectors in my time. And unfortunately, I've had some um, experiences of being led by quite poor leaders and I've always found the best leaders to be those that are capable of working from the bottom to the top so they're not bothered if they work alongside let's say the cleaner um, but then also work alongside you know more top level executives at the same time so leaders that aren't afraid to get their hands dirty but be personable tend to be better leaders in my eyes and um, I've found that over the course of my working life and that's how I model myself and I find that my staff appreciate that in particular. It shows a real humility, doesn't it? That willingness to be on an equal footing with those around you. And um, I think interestingly, even though some leaders do, of course, take that approach, there is always this sort of natural, um, I suppose, temptation, if you will, uh, from employees, especially to when they sort of need that direction and that little bit of inspiration um, in what they're doing. They naturally sort of look to their leaders to provide that, don't they? And that's been especially the case during the uh, the covid 19 situation um, as well where it's fallen on the shoulders of today's generation of business leaders to provide the reassurance um, and keeping the communication channels open as needed and that's been quite a challenge um, I've seen certainly because the information coming out isn't always clear and trying to provide reassurance when people are sort of looking up to you and giving you that pressure that isn't always an easy thing how has it been for you Catherine in managing this period and the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought about in your business? Because I can imagine it has thrown up one or two quite significant ones. I mean, I can approach this from a couple of different strands, actually. So from um, a managerial or a leader point of view, uh, my staff have actually been petrified. Mm. I mean, I run a team of maintenance guys, a team of cleaners, a team of of lettings people. 
And obviously, you know, none of them have wanted to go into other people's homes to do um, maintenance visits or, or, you know, routine visits as are necessary. Um, and just face to, the face-to-face uh, interaction that is so important as part of the lettings business has really been put under extreme pressure. And I think anybody that's been involved in that or worked through this um, epidemic has, has, you know, has really felt fear. And the way that I've got round that this time is I've put myself on the front behind. Um, I've furloughed a couple of um, staff who have um, smaller children and, um, you know, within the lettings industry, there's not there's not been that much scope for new lets. So I furloughed those particular staff, A, to keep them safe, B, because I do want them back, and C, just to try and get my business through this. Uh, my maintenance guys have worked through it throughout, but honestly, at times, they've been absolutely petrified. I mean, this, is, this has been an unprecedented event that, mm. you know, I don't anybody thought they would see this in their lifetime and you know literally the fear on those guys faces every day as I'm directing them with jobs that need doing it's been quite misfortunate as well because the um, weather hasn't been particularly kind so we've had a few roofing issues and leaks and things that we wouldn't normally get this time of year Um, and obviously that mixed in with the, the you know the pandemic is just you know really terrifying and when you've got People who, you know, I've had tenants that have had COVID-19. Um, so they're phoning me up and saying, you know, we're really sick. Nobody can come in, but we've got a boiler outage or whatever. You know, even that in itself, you know, being so careful to make sure that you don't put anybody at risk of anything. For me personally, it's been petrifying. Mm. And then also from another strand, um, looking at it, you know, my duty of care to my tenants. I mean, I've had phone calls from the police in the middle of the night to say that the doctors have been trying to get hold of um, certain tenants, can't get hold of them, and we need to go and do a care visit. The first time that happened to me, again, you know, I was terrified, dressing up in PPE and going out to see if a tenant was okay and still at home and breathing is, you know, not something that I was expecting to be doing this year. And, you know, I've, I've found the whole experience really difficult and something I'm really glad that we're, we've come through it in a positive way. But, you know, I wouldn't like to have to go through it again. Mm. I can imagine from and, a mental health and well-being perspective, certainly, it's been incredibly difficult from uh, what you're telling me there. Yeah, incredibly difficult. I mean, we, we've from a management perspective, we've tried to keep in touch with all of our tenants, you know, with regular routine emails, calls, you know, anybody that I feel is vulnerable, I've given them my personal phone number, told them they can call me anytime to talk through any issues they may have, or if they just require some shopping or something very simple. So, you know, we've tried to look after our tenants as much as possible, but it's it's really difficult. But then on the other hand, you've got some tenants that really can't seem to get their head around the fact that this pandemic is happening and they're just living their lives um, as normal, still visiting family, friends, um, obviously putting other tenants at risk as well. So it, it is a very difficult circumstance, I think, all round. And looking back sort of over how it's been managed um, so far from uh, your point of view, do you think that 
guide, guidance from the government in particular has been sort of clear enough, just considering the debate that there's been about um, all of that. Because some businesses think that they've been very aware of what's been expected of them throughout this pandemic to continue to operate in one way or another, whereas for others, it's been a little bit more complicated. So I'm just interested to hear your view on that, Catherine. I think it's been a little bit more complicated for us. I mean, you know, we haven't been able to put tenants away. You know, tenants are still there. Leaks still happen, you know, boiler outages, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had to work through this. Obviously, we're not defined as key workers as such. But I think we should have been in in some respects because we have been there on the front line all the way through this, helping um, helping people to get through the other side and, and particularly putting people who are quite vulnerable um, and at risk themselves. We've been putting them at the forefront of our thoughts all the way through it. I also feel, I mean, that the, um, the announcement that came out kind of like to open again was really bizarre. I sort of went to bed, didn't expect to be told that I've got to reopen again the next day. I thought, you know, how did that happen? Where did that come from? So that was a little bit bizarre as well. So in a couple of respects, really, I found it quite difficult. And the guidance has been hard to find and hard to follow at times. And obviously, because, you, you know, you've got people's health and well-being, both mentally and physically, at the forefront of your business, you do have to, you feel like you're reading constantly or, you know, trying to find this information out constantly with nobody there really to help you. So, no, I think it has been a bit confusing. Mm. Do you think that sort of reflecting on the pandemic thus far, that your experience of managing a way through this crisis is going to ultimately bring you closer together as sort of a company, as it were, and really galvanise you going forward? Do you think that you'll emerge from this stronger, I suppose, is the point I'm trying to make? I think everybody that has worked through this pandemic, um, the, te- the team that has been built out of it is slightly different to the normal everyday mm. running that you'd find in a business. So yes, I do I do think that you are going to be stronger and feel more committed to your employees or employer just because um, of the way it's been and the complete fear that you felt all the way through it, both from my part and from my staff. I mean, they, they, they've all, as I've said before, been petrified. So it kind of brings you closer together. Those feelings do. And thinking about the future now, um, I'd like to, of course, talk a little bit about that because we reflected a lot on the pandemic thus far. Do you think that there are any features of this lockdown period that could end up becoming a permanent part of the way that business operates in this country, particularly with regard to the remote working side of things? Sometimes it's really nice to be able to take a little step back and reflect. And I think, yes, we have had a chance to do that through this pandemic. I feel that we now work in a much safer way, um, both in the office and out of the office. So to ensure everybody's health is, is, is you know, safe and, and well is clearly the most important thing for all of us all of the time. So moving forward, I think everybody's health and safety is going to be um, a lot more of a priority than it probably was in the past. I also think that policies, procedures, risk assessments, I think sometimes they, they can lapse a little bit. And I think sometimes it's nice to, well, it's not nice, but, you know, it's important to go through something um, that's a bit of a shock to the system should be able to alter these things 
and review them and renew them. And I think that's something that you can get a bit stale with if you're not careful. So it's given us definitely the chance to be able to reflect and have a look at all of our policies and procedures and renew and review those. So that's really helpful. Um, I also think that from a business perspective and purely a business perspective, it's important to look at how you want to survive and thrive in the future. So I think, you know, we've had some really quite healthy discussions about how we want to promote ourselves in the future and how we can see ourselves in 10 years' time, which, yes, you do on a daily basis, but maybe not when you're in the middle of a pandemic and realise that actually you are quite delicate. I mean, every business has Mm -hmm. been really delicate through this pandemic, and it's quite nice to be able to feel that I personally feel now that we're going to come through this pandemic and be a stronger company, which is absolutely fantastic. So for me, I think that's brilliant. You know, we're probably going to be looking at expanding a little bit um, further in over the next couple of years as well. So that's really helpful for us. So, you know, we're going to be lucky. um, But I think having that chance of reflection has been a bonus and one that probably wouldn't have had if the pandemic hadn't have been there. And thinking about expansion, even amid all of the uncertainty, is remarkably encouraging, um, I have to say, Catherine. And let's hope that there'll be some fantastic news to share in the uh, the coming uh, months. And, you know, given how informative it's been having you join us on the programme today to discuss some of these issues, I actually think it would be wonderful to have you back on the show at some point in the next year just to see how things are getting on. That would be wonderful, yeah. I think it would be fantastic as well, Catherine, because it has been a real pleasure having you join us today. It's a shame we don't have more time on the programme, otherwise we could discuss these issues long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, But thank you ever so much once again for the time taken to join us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're still not quite sure how the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is going to transpire in the winter. So let's hope that it's all positive and upward trajectory from here. Thank you so much for the time taken out today as well. It's been a pleasure to be on this programme. And for those listening in, do continue to look after yourselves and be sensible, even with lockdown restrictions being continually lifted, because it does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Catherine Le Prevot, Director of Be Living Students and Professional Homes. And coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, an active member of the House of Lords and, of course, a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his professional political career, um, I have to say that Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair. And he served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, accomplishing all of that despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords five years ago in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of 
normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000. All all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, Uh, we'll be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home 
the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually 
uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of 
those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now it has been said by certain parties um, and uh, i'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? 
I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial 
for our democracy, all of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.